0: Luke chapter 24, today we'll be going over verses 45 to the end of the chapter, verse 53. We'll take up the reading in verse 44. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 44. Then he, that is Jesus, said to them, his disciples, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God." In these last earthly moments with Jesus, what we have here is a moment. It's a day that the disciples definitely don't want to call in sick for. They want to be there because this is a momentous day. It is is—it's so huge of a day that we can confidently say that all of history is turning with this day. In fact, the disciples, being as they are the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, are crossing the threshold of history from an era of promise into an era of fulfillment. The age is changing and they are going with it. What Jesus does here is tell his disciples in these few verses that we have before us what the Bible is for. That's big he tells them what the Bible is for. And as he does that, he also shows to them what the course of their lives is going to be. And this applies to you and to me. I mean, the Bible that they had is what we have, and on top of that, we have their writings in addition in the New Testament. But we, we see what the Bible is for you and for me. And not only that, but we see and we hear in the words of the Lord Jesus What is to be the course of our lives? This is the course of your life, the course of my life, and this is to be the the purpose of our lives together. So there is a lot of weight in these words, and words, truth here that we must take to heart. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. Father, I do pray that you would help us. We need, Father, your Holy Spirit because we will not see the glory of Jesus on our own. We won't hear the, the power, the weight of the truth on our own. Our hearts will not be receptive. They'll remain stiff and proud, unmoved, unbelieving, disobedient if we are left to ourselves. So, Father, I pray that you would give to us your Spirit and I pray that everyone here, without exception would be looking to you for the help that you give to us by your Spirit. May every heart's cry be, God, give to us your Spirit that we may be your obedient people. May we be faithful disciples, Lord, to the, to the end of our days, until we are with you, may we be faithful. Use this word to affect that, to bring change to our lives and transformation. Make us like your Son, our Lord Jesus. It's in His name that we pray for this grace and mercy. Amen. I want you to look back down at verses 45, 46, and 47. It says that Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. What they need to know is what the Bible is for, what the Bible is about, what it means, what its significance is. They need to know what the Bible is for, okay? And then he says that two things are happening here. One really has already happened, and one is about to happen, but both of them are in fulfillment of the Bible. Both of them occur according to what is written in the Scriptures, So let me read this again. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written. And here in verse 46 is what has already taken place, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. What Jesus had done in setting his face toward Jerusalem, arriving finally at the city, giving his life up to suffering and to death, and then rising again on the third day, all of it was according to what is written in the Scriptures. It fulfills the Bible. And then verse 47 is the same. This also, what is about to take place, starting from Jerusalem, this also is according to what is written in fulfillment of the Scriptures. He says, And that thus it is written, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So I think that we can boil down basically to an essence what the Bible is for. Two things. The Bible is for knowing Jesus. And second, for making him known. This is what the Bible is for. To know the crucified and risen Christ and knowing Him to make Him known. Let me put it even more parallel statements. Hopefully this can stick in your memory. This is what the Bible is for and this is what your life is for. To know Jesus, crucified and risen, and to make Him known for repentance and forgiveness. I'll say it again. The Bible is for you to know Him yourself. Jesus crucified and risen. And the Bible is for you making Him known to the nations for repentance and forgiveness. This is what the Bible is for. And this is what your life is for. It is for knowing Him and making Him known. That's why you were made It's why He fashioned you in the womb. Why He created you and put you here in this time and place. This is why He set you in the context in which you live. In North Louisiana. In 2017. You are here to know Jesus. You are part of this generation of disciples to know Christ. And knowing Him to make Him known. Are you pressing yourself into this? Are you pressing yourself into knowing Christ? And is it your life's aim to make Him known? This is what the Bible is about. This is what your life is about. Let's go back. Let's concentrate first of all on the fulfillment of the Word of God in Jesus' coming, suffering, dying, and rising from the dead. I've been telling you over the last couple of weeks that Jesus is the one who makes sense of the Bible for us. I've said the Bible makes sense of Him and He makes sense of the Bible. Now that first part that the Bible makes sense of Him is not unusual. That's to be expected. Just like we would expect the Bible to make sense of Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of Israel, David, and, and make sense of all the events and the institutions. Okay, so it makes sense that the Bible makes sense of Jesus. But the second part, that he makes sense of the Bible, that's that's unusual. That is obviously clearly above and beyond everything else we find in the Bible. Because no one else within the Scriptures makes sense of all of the Bible. It would be like saying, as I said last week, you know, American history explains George Washington. Tells us who he is, what he did, accomplished, all of that. It shows us the significance of his life. American history does that. But he's limited to uh, however long he lived, right? He's limited to that. So he can't, even though American history makes sense of him, he doesn't make sense of all of American history. But Jesus is the one who makes sense of all of salvation history. I think maybe an illustration would help because I don't know how clear that I'm making this. So think of it like this. It it is like going back to the beginning of the Bible to the the books written by Moses and then all the way through Malachi, all the way to the time of Jesus. We're traveling this highway that is lined with signs and they're all pointing forward to Jesus every year, every summer, and in a few weeks, Lord willing, uh, my family leaves from here on a Sunday Sunday afternoon after church, and we head north to go to Canada. We travel north to Little Rock, go over east to Memphis, and then up there from there, take highway fifty five which turns into uh, interstate fifty seven takes us just south of Chicago, and just south of Chicago, we turn east a little little piece of Indiana there, and then across the pothole-covered state of Michigan. It's rough, believe me. We cross the state of Michigan and then go over a river there into Ontario. And once we're in Canada, we're at the bottom of Lake Huron. And so we've gone east, now we're going to turn north again. We follow the, the eastern shore of Lake Huron until we reach the northerly tip of what is called the Bruce Peninsula. It's got Lake Huron on the west and Georgian Bay on the north and the east. And that's where my parents live, on the northern tip of the Bruce Peninsula. When I was a boy, we, uh, my family went on vacation to this spot. And um, when my dad was a boy, um, his family went on vacation to this spot. So, my kids are the fourth generation of Reynolds to go to this place. And now my parents live there, which is major bonus, because we don't have to rent a cottage or anything like that. Uh, so this is great. So when I was a boy and we travel up there, we, get, we would get on Highway 6. Highway 6 is the only road that goes to the top of the peninsula. And we would have a contest as we were going. As soon as we got within about 40 or 50 miles of Tobermory, which is the town where my parents live, we we would try to be, each of us would try to be the first one to spot the first sign for the sweet shop. And then we would try to be the first one to see the second sign for the sweet shop. And the first one trying to be the, you know, to to see the third sign for the sweet shop. There's probably like half a dozen signs along the way for the sweet shop. So when you get to the end of Highway 6... And you get to to downtown Tobermory, you're in a harbor that is lined with shops. And one of these shops is the sweet shop, of course. And, and you go in and you find these candy-filled racks and stands all over the place. There's homemade, well I say homemade, um, there's fudge and all kinds of goodies that are made in store. And probably the highlight would be this this long counter filled with all kinds of big buckets of ice cream. And it's one of the highlights of our trip. And it was one of the highlights of the trip when I was a boy. When, when you are going into the sweet shop for the first time, and you see all of this candy and ice cream and everything, that's when the signs make sense. The signs have been pointing to the sweet shop. And the sweet shop, in turn, when you come in there for the first time, it explains what the signs were all about. The significance of the signs. You don't get confused by the signs. You don't stop at the signs. They're not the destination. They're pointing you forward to the destination. And it's the same way with the Lord Jesus Christ. All along the road of the Bible, we are encountering signs. They're pointing the way forward. People, right from right from Adam. People, places like Eden. Events like the redemption out of Egypt. There's institutions like the whole Levitical system with the tabernacle and the priesthood. There are provisions like manna in the wilderness. There are miracles, all of it. None of those things stand alone as though they have all of their meaning and significance in themselves. We don't, we don't stop at the first, second, or third signs for the sweet shop and get out and lick the picture of the ice cream. We keep going forward. And so it is with the Bible and Jesus. Now, I admit that the signs in the Bible are, are rather different from road signs because we don't clue in right away that Adam is a likeness of someone to come. We don't clue in right away that the tabernacle and temple are pointing forward to something bigger and better, that it's a shadow and the real substance of the thing is going to come in time. One look at the sweet shop sign and you know it's not the destination. Um, despite how weary and cranky and hungry my kids are, at that point of the trip, you're not going to get out at any of the signs and find bite marks in you know a picture of Fudge. We don't stop at the signs. So the, the Bible signs are different, but when we come to Jesus, when we finally arrive at the destination, we look back. We look back at the way we came through him. And then we realize That everything has been about Him the whole way. All of these things have been shadows and He is the real substance. They have been likenesses. They've been signs and He is the destination. He's been the goal. Everything in the past finds its meaning and significance in Him. That's Jesus. So again, it says, Then He opened their minds to understand understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That has been what the Bible has been saying all along the way. In fact, you can go right to the beginning, to the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, when they disobey the word of God not to eat the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, the the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. When they sin against God, God speaks to each of them in turn, to Adam and to Eve, and then even to the serpent, who is in disguise as the true enemy of God and God's people. And remember what the Lord said to the serpent? He said, I will put enmity, division, hatred between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, now we're getting specific, the offspring of the woman, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What does this mean? It is the promise of Jesus' non-permanent death and the utter destruction of the devil. Right from the beginning, we have a sign. We have a sign that makes full sense when Jesus comes and accomplishes what he does in Jerusalem. Think of another serpent incident. After Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's descendants have uh, accumulated, grown in, in Egypt, they are put into slavery. God, faithful to the promise that he had made them, delivers them out with a, a mass exodus. And he gathers his people to himself at the wilderness at Sinai. And this is this is a great moment for for them, and they're gonna we're gonna actually come back to this. And you think that these people are going to be so faithful to God, and they're going to carry out His mission for the world, but they don't. Instead, they turn against God time after time after time. By the time you get to the Book of Numbers, well, there's one incident that I want to highlight. They they rebel against God for like, to use one of Joel's numbers. He used this number the other day. It's like for the 11th time they rebel. He told me a couple days ago that he's four and he's going to be five, then he's going to be six, and then he's going to be 11 teen, and then he's going to be a teenager after that. So to use one of his numbers, for like the 11th time they're rebelling against God and God sends in his judgment fiery serpents into the camp with a poisonous and fatal bite. The people cry out to God then when they're experiencing the cost of their sin. They cry out in repentance to God and he mercifully instructs Moses to craft a serpent out of bronze and erect it upon a pole with the promise that whoever believes and looks upon that serpent raised in the camp will be healed and will live. And we're like, that's pretty cool. And it happens just like that. You know, just like I said, that's what happens. But when Jesus comes, He reveals that that event, that miracle was actually a sign, a likeness of what He would do. So that in John chapter 3, this is what Jesus says. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life when they looked upon that pole, upon that serpent, what were they seeing? What was represented there? It was the cost of their sin. And when sinners, broken, spiritually dead, doomed, look upon Jesus Christ, crucified, we are looking upon the cost of our sin. But when we look upon Him in faith, We are healed, not just from temporary sicknesses of the world, which we have to endure until we die, but we are healed of our spiritual death, and we receive eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, look, it's always been written that the Christ must suffer and die and on the third day be raised. This is what the Bible is for what all of it is for all of it from the books of Moses to the end Malachi up until the time of Jesus it is for making Jesus known to us it is so that we would know the crucified and risen Christ and of course in the gospels we're looking right upon Jesus and His glory, and all of that makes sense. And then the rest of the New Testament is explaining that and showing us our new identity in Jesus. But This is what the Bible is for. So that you would know the crucified Christ, the risen Christ. This is what your life is for. This is your life. To know Him, as we sang a little bit ago, to know Him, and then... We move on to other things? No. To know him, then know him more. We never move on from Christ. We never move on from the gospel. Always, ever, only, always, we go deeper and deeper into Christ. Now remember in this moment that as Jesus is teaching this to his disciples, they are coming to... They're coming to a turn in the Bible in a way. And the disciples are caught up in this. It's like they're swinging on the hinge of the scriptures. Or to put it another way, as the disciples of Jesus, the one whom the Bible promises and the one who fulfills all the promises of the Bible, they're crossing the threshold into a new day. It's a new age. History is turning. So... What had happened in Jerusalem, when Jesus came to the end of His journey in Jerusalem, He fulfilled a work. And it was a work only He could do. The work of salvation. His, his life, perfect, righteous life. His substitutionary death, perfectly sacrificial, atoning for sin. His resurrection from the grave, the work of salvation which He proclaimed to be finished, he alone could do it. But with this turn of history or the crossing of the threshold into a new age, a new work is beginning. The new work of the church making him known. We know him deeply and then we make him known widely. We know him ourselves and then we make him known to the nations. We know him in his death and resurrection and then we make him known for repentance and forgiveness. And this is what he calls us to. So he says, thus it is written in verse 46 and then he skipped down to verse 47. Thus it is written that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So one work ended in Jerusalem and a new work begins from Jerusalem. And Jesus says this is what the Bible is for. It is to, to show us Jesus so that we might show Jesus to the world. Something I want to explain real quick. I call this a new work. The church proclaiming Him to the nations. But more specifically, it's the new phase of an old work because it's been written in the Bible that God's people should always, in every era, make him known. So going back to the story of the people of Israel when they were in the wilderness at Sinai, this is what God said to them when they were gathered there. I hope these words are familiar to you. Um, real quick, let me put this in here. I have been talking about for for some time now, and especially in the last few weeks, how Jesus fulfills the Scripture. How all of the signs are fulfilled in Him. All of the purposes, promises are fulfilled in Him. He is the goal. And I've been talking about these different signs, these types, we called them last week. We have... The people, the, uh, the all the the major cast of characters, each one of them is a type of Jesus that was to come. So the Bible speaks of the first Adam and the last Adam. He was a type of Jesus, a likeness of Jesus that Jesus fulfills. But listen, when I say these things, I am afraid that some don't have the frame of reference for this, so that when I talk about these things, you might not know that incident. You might not know that individual or about that whole tabernacle system. And these are basics of the Old Testament. So I want to encourage you, I know that the Old Testament can be difficult and at places tedious, but if you are going to understand the the meaning of Christ and the true beauty of His glory. You have to understand how He fulfills the Bible. So you need to understand these Old Testament likes and likenesses and types and all of that stuff. Okay. Well, back to this. When, when the people of God were gathered at Sinai, this is what He said to them. He said, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, this Now, my words, this is going to be your identity. This is going to be who you are. He said, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is their identity as the people of God. If they will obey him, they will be his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Well, this is how the gospel is such good news because it is not by obeying the law of the covenant that we become these things. We don't receive our identity in Jesus by obedience to Jesus. It is by faith in Jesus. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that this is who you become. So the apostle Peter writing to the New Testament church, was exhorting them by way of reminder of who they were. And listen to what he said. He said, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness, into His marvelous light. He said, this is who you are in order that you may make Jesus known to all of the world. Jesus had, the Lord had called Israel His kingdom of priests. What does that even mean? Kingdom of priests. Well, what is a priest? You strip away all of the outward garments, the fancy jewels, and the ceremonies. Basically, what is a priest? A priest represents God to mankind. He is the representative of God. So what then would be a kingdom of priests? It is a whole nation representing God to the world, declaring to the world what God is like. And so even in the Old Testament, there was ingrained in their identity what their mission was. To proclaim God. To make Him known. That's why I say what we're doing today, what we're supposed to be doing today, as the church is a new phase of an old mission. We're to make Him known to all of the world. Now, let me move on because... Running out of time here. Let me go to verse 48. Jesus says to his disciples, you are witnesses of these things. They were eyewitnesses. So in a sense, they are unique witnesses. Witnesses in a way that we can't be witnesses. Because we have not seen with our physical eyes the crucified, risen Lord Jesus. But they did. So they were eyewitnesses of the fulfillment of scripture. Jesus, the Messiah, crucified unto death and risen on the third day. And now that witness is going to, well, it's really a very natural thing. As they had seen with their eyes, so they would make known with their mouths. They were eyewitnesses and they would bear witness of what they had seen and what they had heard to all the world for the world's repentance and forgiveness of sins. There are two things that you and I need to be faithful witnesses. First of all, let's take into account all of Luke's gospel. We need to be, here's a familiar word, certain. If you have an eyewitness brought into court to act for the the persecution or the defense, they better be certain about what they saw and what they heard as they bear witness. Because it makes a very lousy witness who is not certain. I mean, if his witness is exposed to uh, be contradictory or whatever, he needs to be, she needs to be certain of what they have seen and what they have heard so they can bear effective witness. It's the same way with you and me. We need to be certain of the truth of Jesus Christ. And as we have been stressing, we need to be certain of the worth of Jesus Christ. Because if we're not certain of the truth of Him, and we're not certain of the worth of His glory, very, very likely we will keep what faith we have to ourselves. Our mouths will stay shut if we are not certain. That's the first thing we need if we're going to be faithful witnesses. Now listen, I'm not talking about being self certain I'm not talking about being self-confident. Like, I know all of the answers. I know before you criticize my faith, before you ask a single question, I know exactly all the questions you're going to ask, all the accusations you will have. It's not that kind of certainty. We're talking about certainty of Jesus. Confidence in Jesus. That... He is truly glorious and He is what I need and He is what this person needs to live, to have salvation. That's the kind of confidence we need to be effective witnesses for Christ. The second thing we need is actually the main thing we need. It's the first. I I said the other thing was the first thing, but only first thing that I was going to say. This is first thing in importance. You and I need the Holy Spirit of God if we are going to be faithful witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 49. He said, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Don't you dare go out into the city of Jerusalem and start talking about me until you have the Holy Spirit. It reminds me of this incident. I wasn't planning on saying this, but I just need to say it. It reminds me of that time when Israel is on the brink of the promised land. And... Initially, you remember that they received the word of the ten poor witnesses that the land is filled with great cities and giants that there's no way that they can overcome. And so the people start to cower in fear and they say, why'd you bring us out into this wilderness to die? We're going to stone you. I don't know why they're all about that, but they are. And so God says, fine, have it your way. You're going. You're going back into the wilderness and every one of you age 20 years old and upward is going to die in the wilderness. It's going to be the longest funeral march in history. 40 years of wandering, all except for Joshua and Caleb, the two faithful witnesses who were sent in. Well, when they heard that, the people of Israel were like, no, we can't have that. Okay, we'll go into the wilderness. We'll do what you said. We promise. And Moses said, don't you dare go in. Because you don't have God with you. You don't have His presence. You don't have His power. You can't do a thing without Him. They didn't listen. They went They went in. They were slain by their enemies and it was nothing but a fast retreat. Those who could escape with their lives. That's what Jesus is saying to His disciples. I'm sending you now into the world. This is your mission. You are going to be witnesses for Me. But you can't do it alone. You need my presence, and you need my power, and I'm going to send it in the person of the Holy Spirit. So wait, and when you receive the Holy Spirit, you will turn the world upside down in my name. Church family, we need the Holy Spirit. That's why I constantly, every time I pray, and I don't want to make it a cliché, I pray that God would give to us His Spirit because we can't do it on our own. No one can believe apart from the Spirit. No one can be convicted. No one can be built up in the faith. No one can be successful in obedience. No one can do anything. Jesus said, apart from Me, you can do nothing. We need the Holy Spirit of God. He is the presence of God and He is the power of God within us. So I said, I think I said it. If I didn't say it, I meant to say it. We need outside help. But it's not just like outside help from one of us. We need outside help from God. And He gives it to us. But it's more than outside help from God. It's outside help from God in us. And it's more than that. It is God in us. God at the center of your being, He is there. Child of God, He is there. His indwelling, permanent presence, the power of God is there. He is the one who gives you life in Jesus. He is the one who gave you eyes to see His glory. He is the one who gave you those spiritual ears, the ears of the heart, to receive His truth for what it is, the truth. And he's the one who gives you certainty. That's why certainty isn't the first thing in importance. The Holy Spirit gives you certainty. And the Holy Spirit conforms you to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit gives you courage for Jesus. So we need and we have the Holy Spirit of God. It says in the next few verses, Then He led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up His hands, He blessed them. While He blessed them, He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now at last, this is the moment that our Lord Jesus was longing for. And I don't have time to talk more about that, but we love this for Him. He is finally returning to His glory, restored to what He had with the Father at the right hand of the Majesty on high, what He had before the foundation of the world. The disciples have more joy. Can't you see this? They have more joy now in Jesus than what they had when they were actually with Him. What a transformation. I mean, a couple of days before... Actually, Luke is compressing this account. So it's actually 40 days before. You have to read that in Acts. But anyway... Um, Several weeks before, when they were without Jesus, what were they like? Cowardly? In distress? Now everything has changed. They have more joy in Christ than when they were with Him. How is that possible? Because they know Jesus better than they ever have. That's amazing. That's amazing, but I believe with all my heart that this is true. They know Him better than they ever have. They know Him better than when they could see Him with their own eyes and hear Him with their physical ears. Why? How? How do they know Him better? Because they see Him through the Bible. They see Him through the Word of God. This is what is so amazing for you and for me. I believe that you can know Jesus better than the disciples did when they were with Him before they understood that He was the fulfillment of all the Scriptures, before they saw Him through the lens of the Bible. We may know Him better now, today, than they could then. Now that's why they're full of joy. They see Him through the Bible, through the Word of God. He has made sense of all the Bible. They're looking back at all of their history as Jews and they're making all of these connections and they're realizing how awesome is the glorious Christ. They're full of joy. They worship Him. Second, they have more joy joy now than they had when they were with Jesus because they know they're not forsaken. They're not alone. The Spirit of Christ is coming and would indwell them, and by the Spirit, they would have better, sweeter, closer fellowship with Jesus than what they had when they were with Him. Does that sound like, are you sure? Listen, Jesus said, It is to your advantage that I go. It is to your advantage. And the third thing is, even as they have understood Jesus to fulfill the purpose of God, God was still working. And He was going to work through them to make Christ known to the nations. They were, from this day forward, the co-workers of God. The times have changed. Here we are, sitting here nearly 2,000 years since this day that Jesus ascended into heaven. The times have changed. We live in a weird, weird world. And the generation of disciples has changed. You know what I'm going to say next? Jesus is the same. He is the same. His call is the same. His commission to His church is the same. The power of God by the Spirit is the same. It is the same for you and me as it was for them in the first century. We are the ones who know Jesus and we may know Him so fully, so deeply by the power of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God that this knowledge overflows from us. And the knowing Him becomes making Him known to all the world, beginning right where we are. This is what we are called to do. This is what the Bible is for. So we would know Jesus and make Him known. And this is what your life is for. This is the course of your life. Know Him. Press into Him. And together, let us make Jesus known to the world. We are co-workers with God making His Son known by the power of the Spirit who indwells you and me. Let's pray. I pray, Father, that Your Word would bring such strong conviction to our hearts that there becomes very practical application to our lives. Father, help us as we interact with family, with our neighbors, with co-workers, the people of this community. Help us to make Jesus known. I pray, Father, that we would share the good news of what Christ has done, believing with all our hearts that this is the best news in all the world, that we can have forgiveness of our sins and be reconciled to the living God and help us to talk like it's the the best news. Not to be ashamed, or apologetic about it. I pray that we would be bold with our witness while maintaining humility and compassion for sinners. And Father, I pray that we would do simple things like inviting people to join us in worshiping God at church every Sunday, so that people may hear the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that my church family would would so be convinced of the truth and the worth of Jesus, would be so convinced and compelled to know Him and to make Him known, that they would make plans for this. They would look for people to speak to, to invite to call to Jesus. I pray that we would be all about this, calling sinners home to Christ. And would You, O Lord, as we have Your Spirit, fill us with Your Spirit, that we may know Christ and faithfully make Him known as we ought to. Add to this church, Lord, those who long to know You. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.